this is Max Mangala, director of Teen Spirit. Over the next few weeks, the filmmakers will be talking to our friends about the movie and also not about the movie. Stay tuned. All right, well, this is Marius de Vries and Steve Gazicki. Welcome to my um, studio, a.k.a. hotel room, Stephen. Hello there. Uh, and thank you for interrupting your very busy day to come and do this. So we both find ourselves um, away from our natural habitat in, in New York. But it gives us the opportunity to sit down and discuss all things teen spirit for the next half an hour. I'd like to start by asking what's keeping you busy these days? Uh, I'm currently working on the Fosse Verdon TV show for, F- TV show for F- FX, which is... Uh, which is already started, already right? Yeah. Third episode airs tonight. I have two episodes downloaded on my iPad for the plane home. Well, to, you should watch them tomorrow. Yes, yes. Uh, the show is... It's, spectacular and we've set a very high bar so we've basically made eight little movie musicals you mean you set a high bar in the first episode that you now have to now we have to leap over every episode from here on in yes is it like making 10 feature films yeah well eight eight feature films yeah basically in the time that you would normally spend making 25 percent of a feature film yeah yeah we've it's been nine months and we've are basically... You feeling, are you feeling a little older now that you've... I am feeling older. <laughs> <laughs> if I survive this, I will look back on it fondly. I was in a, I was in a stage in my life that was very like that mm-hmm. last October. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, I, I think it was touch and go, but I came out the other side of this and... and well, that's uh, what we do. Uh, and we, it did make me stronger. Yeah. Did it? I don't know. We lift this heavy and up, maybe. maybe. <laughs> You know, that's as The terrible as thing is, yeah. you, you, for, you forget these periods very yeah. quickly and yeah. then you do them again. And it's you like having say yes to everything. It's like having right? babies. Yes. And then suddenly you have octuplets and you didn't expect that. Yeah. And they, all, they all need feeding. And they all need feeding and I'm, I only have so many hands. Yeah. And so, I'm also someone was on. saying to me that, that, that this business is, it's a pie eating contest mm-hmm. um, and the more pie you eat the more likely you are to win and the prize is more pie i thought that was quite (laughs) some sort of gastro disease (laughs) Uh, so this is the treadmill we're stuck on i think anyway um so you're doing that and and wrapping up and in the heights which is why i'm here in new york because i'm getting ready to shoot that okay starting in seven weeks and that's for our friends at Warner Brothers. Yes. And that's going to be very, absolutely spectacular. And every minute on it is just joy. Great cast. Director John Chu is amazing. Lynn Manuel right. producing. And it's really, it's. And do you consider yourselves, yourself now a New Yorker? Sure. Why not? <laughs> How long Except did that take? I got lost coming to your house. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're an hour late. Yes. Welcome to that's Manhattan. About, yeah. That's, that's about part here. of the yeah, No, I, I absolutely love it here because it turns out, despite my California upbringing, I'm a walker. I enjoy the walking, which is why I love it in London so much as well. Right. I just like to go out my front door and there's the world as opposed to having to, you know, you and I live, well, you lived down the street from me for a while there. And we live perched on a hill and having yeah. to drive down the hill just to get a Starbucks or a bottle of wine was. That's why I moved downtown. Yeah. Well, my question is, I, I know how I got involved in this. How did you get involved or were we approached at the same time? I can't recall. I think we were approached at the same time. And I think it was during the last months of La La Land. Yeah. In fact, maybe not even the last months. I think it might have been towards the end of the shoot around well, that period there was that day that max and jamie came to set when we were shooting start a fire and did we know who they were when they came we knew that they were actors no but (laughs) (laughs) they were famous so i didn't recognize them at all (laughs) i I think that might have been around that time that we would have been told that that max had a project and fred was going to produce it yeah because fred was attached to it even before la la land so yeah this had a, a long history and I suppose we were asked both more or less at the same time whether we were interested yeah. in doing it, uh, uh, doing it. And at the time, I think, I mean, for my part, I was having a good time working with Fred yeah. uh, in, you know, uh, in what was, I think, already beginning to feel like a very special project. Yeah. So, so um, I was inclined to follow him wherever he wanted to go next. Yeah. So um, I probably said, yes, let's do it before I knew anything about what it was i did the same yeah and that was many years ago ladies and gentlemen (laughs) that was that was many years ago but 
you know, then then we we met Max and and yeah. read the script and, but it was a little different. Yeah. In those days, yeah. as a concept, right? Yeah. It was set. <clears throat> it, it, it was set not in the Isle of Wight, but in Croatia. Was it Croatia? Right, yeah. It was Croatia. It was, and so, it, was, yeah, it, it wasn't even Poland, right? It was no, Croatia. It was, and, and it was, it was intended it was to be small. mostly in Croatian, right? It wasn't even going to be an English language film for. for it was going to be in Croatian, yeah. in Croatia, uh, with a Croatian unknown actress. Yeah. And we met with, with, a, with a few of them, if you recall. We did some and Skypes. they were wondering we were why it was proving difficult to raise money. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it has all the hallmarks of a box office success. Um. <laughs> and I, I think they were incrementally trying to put more and more English into it. Yeah. But it was, you know, at one point it became 80% Croatian and 20% English. Yeah. And still, it wasn't, as they say, moving the needle yeah. for any investors. Plus dancing on my own. That was already in there? Yeah. That was in there. Croatian? No. I, God, that would be great. I, I was see expecting that to have to translate all the lyrics into Croatian. Um... I quite liked the idea of doing an art house European movie. Yeah. And I thought we could pretend that that's what this was if it was in Croatian. I also quite liked so, the idea of going to Croatia for a summer. I thought that I was wasn't so, Yeah, I wasn't so sure about that. Yeah. Um, that whole uh, part of Eastern Europe is strange to me. And uh, oh, maybe uh, I'm well, we going to, to Bosnia this, this year yeah. for a yeah. festival. My friend Valida is organizing a, oh. some sort of yoga wellness festival in Bosnia. I think I might be persuaded to go and join in with that. But and anyway, um, a few things happened. It got, uh, and I'm not sure in what order, but mm -hmm. L, L became attached. And the way it was explained to me, and I have no reason to doubt that this is what happened, is that she, she independently reached out to Max and says, said, I hear you are doing a music-based film with some singing in it. I'm your girl. Yeah. She's, she had been looking for something where she could sing. Right. That was the, the story I heard as well. Which is interesting because to all intents and purposes, she was a beginner as, yeah. a, as a singer at the time. I mean, she, she must have had some deep um, ambition or inclination to do with singing that, that wasn't to do with anything that she was practicing day in and day out. Yeah. A bit like we once said, I want to be in the film business. <laughs> <laughs> do we regret that? <laughs> some days. <laughs> some, some days I'm sure we do, yeah. Um, <clears throat> but Elle arrived, it became English language with a Polish twist. Yeah. And they made the decision to switch the location from the smallest village in Croatia to, to, the, Isle to the Isle of Wight. Which was actually South London. Yes, yeah, we never did get to go to the island for the shoot. I think some of them went to the ferry, as yeah. far as the ferry to shoot. I, think, I don't know that they actually got off the ferry, right? Well, they it's got the, on they it filmed and just, on the ferry and then filmed and they on went the way back. Well, the other was interesting. I mean, I think it was an inspired choice yeah. for, for a number of reasons, some of which we'll get into later. But first of all, I thought it was an inspired choice because when I was growing up, um, my family had a holiday cottage mm -hmm. on the Isle of Wight, so this was my my happy place as a child. Um, and so I liked it for that reason. And I thought it was interesting as well, because I, even from then, I was aware of the fact that the Mingela family name was also indelibly connected with the Isle of yeah. Wight, because the, the founders of the greatest Isle of Wight ice cream dynasty of all. Mm -hmm. And there to this day, if you go to almost any shop or cafe and order ice cream, you're getting Mingela's ice cream, and it's it's very, very fine too. So there was that family connection for Max as well. And also, it made it made sense philosophically because it was so you know for for Violet, it, it was so close to a big city, but also very far away at the same time. Right, she was isolated on that island, but London was. Technically, not that yeah. far. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's very isolated, yeah. the island, and, and um, it's isolated economically as yeah. well as geographically from the rest of the mainland. And in a strange sort of way, it's isolated historically as well, because it, it's one of those places, and you, you must know places like this, where as soon as you go there, everything feels like it's 20 years. Yeah. You're transported 20 years into the past. Like going to Havana or something like mm -hmm. that, you know, all the cars are 20 years old. All the paintwork is, it's 20 years since it was touched up. It, it's, 
Um, and 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 that 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 felt like it was interesting in terms of the repertoire we were using, um, but which also had a sort of his, historical framework. We'll talk about song selection mm. later, mm. but 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 a, a lot of the music is was sort of fifteen twenty years old. Yeah, and yet some of the film felt like it was present present day. So uh, uh, the Isle of Wight sort of helped with that, I thought. But um, I went scouting there. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. It was, I thought maybe I'd be able to get the production to pay for my ferry <laughs> ticket if I if I'd called my visit to the Isle of Wight as Something scouting. Something tells me visit. they didn't. Uh, the invoice is in. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I live in hope. <laughs> Uh, but th- this was a, a sort of um, sad family story, really, because uh, about a year before um, the run-up to the shoot, my my mother passed away, and my brother and I wanted to meet up and have a sort of memorial scattering of the ashes mm-hmm. sort of event for her, and we thought we would try and do it at the Isle of Wight, which was also the place that she loved best, you know, in our memory. Um, so so. We went there to have our own sort of private second funeral come memorial event. And whilst I was there, uh, apart from spending some lovely time with with my brother, who I don't get to see enough because he lives a long way away, uh, I I drove around with him and sort of looked for schools and and church halls and choir practice rooms and just, just... uh, farmhouses that might sort of be the sort of place that she would live. And I, I, I sent a bunch of photographs back and, and Max said he was truly inspired by them. And then the shooting schedule put us in South London, as you said, for <laughs> yes. the entirety of it. So all of those interiors were in in, in London, far-flung parts of London as well. Yeah. I've travelled more in London during that shoot than ever yeah. before in my life. Spent a lot of time in rivers. And trains. And in the end, I think it worked out really well. Yeah. But 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 at the time, I, I you know partly because of my personal connection with the Isle of Wight, I remember being a bit obsessed with the idea that that the location should be informing the story more than it was. Yeah. Um, probably because the location was the newest thing in the story because of the transplant from Croatia. But, I, but you know. Um, but well, then, even though we lost some of that in in relocating from Croatia uh, around the same time I remember the sort of subplot of her being a foreigner in you know Brexit England kind of became a, a you know not a big subplot to the film but it but it started to to take shape to a certain extent and I thought that was yeah. a really interesting texture that that was added around that period Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it it suddenly became very topical yeah. because you know the the, um, the the real the the immigrant situation become very apparent and very politically hot, and 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 Brexit all happened during the run up to the shoot, right? Yeah. So yeah. it was sort of shot shot within that context, and it certainly gave the story a particular resonance. Um, I think there was one draft that was actually really political for a bit. In, in one area of the script, I think, right? Yeah, you're likely right. I, I'm not sure I remember it, but um, that's what you do. You know, that's how what what we do in music, and that's what you do if you're a writer. You pu- you, know, you push it to see how far it can go until it breaks, and then you sort of pull it back to where it probably belongs. You put it back after it's broken. Yes, exactly. <laughs> if you can, <laughs> sometimes it's too late. Sometimes it's just broken. Just whilst we're talking about the the, the Polish subplot. Um, or the Polish texture of it. Um, I thought we should talk a little bit about the cast, um, and partic- particularly Agnieszka and, and Zlatko, and, and the and what they brought to the yeah. story. Because, you know, um, Elle is obviously not not um, obviously Polish when you meet her, mm. um, and. Uh, she, just as she had to study hard to sing, I think she had to study hard to be able to yeah. deliver a, a significant amount of Polish dialogue. And, and um, I can't tell with my ear how well she did, mm-hmm. but but um, she's certainly received a lot of positive notices for how, how 
how convincingly she did that. Yeah. But um, I thought when I finally got to see this on the big screen with an audience, which is when you really know what you've got, I, th I, I thought the way that um, her character interacted with her mother was a real um, a real positive surprise. I thought that that was really a really warm relationship. Yeah. And then obviously the relationship um, with with Slatko's character, um, her, her Russian operatic mentor, um, which was clearly from from the outset the spine of of, of the narrative. But but um, I didn't realize how quite how how um, comedic it was. Yeah. It, how successfully comedic it was until I saw it in in the big space with the audience. Did you find that? Yeah. Although I. I remember the first time I saw, I saw the cut of him walking on stage after dancing on my own and asking for he's, for money you know, for money and do we do we win something or <laughs> what? Like, yes, and I remember sort of chuckling at that point, realizing okay, he's comedy gold. But he's very, but it's not a caricature. He's very, no. he's very genuine, and I think that's what the, these two actors that we're talking about bring to the table. Is there something so? Did you know him Real. as an actor before? No, he did not. And I know I knew him from um, uh, Nicholas Winding Refn's okay. um, Danish crime oh, trilogy yeah. from way back when, that had um, uh, what's his name? Um, Michael. Michael um, I'm blanking on the, the other actor's name, but, but uh, I knew him a bit from that, playing a very dark, mm -hmm. violent criminal character. So this, I think this was casting against type for him. Um, and he's giant too. He's eight, he eight feet tall. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think he's. I don't recall him being very Maybe, tall oh, at all. Yeah, well, you're very tall. He was less so tall. <laughs> I don't think he's as tall as me. <clears throat> maybe maybe yeah. we were at the, the same height, but um, he he was great fun on set yeah, as well. Absolutely, wasn't he? And he. Um, it's funny when you get someone playing a character who's so three sheets to the wind and sort of out to lunch mm -hmm. as his character was and then realizing that underneath that there's a real disciplined craft yeah that's enabling him to get to that place um but yeah i, th I thought i thought uh, in terms of the foreign content of the story i thought those, those two cast members really um made a big difference um when you look back on the shoot, how do you remember it? Rainy. <laughs> um, it was it was it was great fun because what a you know, we had a fantastic crew and it's a, you know it was fun to have some friends of ours from America over there, right? Fred, Max, Jamie, Al, Tony, Tony. Um, so you know, even though you're far away from home, you still have you know. A sense of camaraderie and home, and everyone that worked with us, you know, the the ads were great. It was just a really good team to be around, and there was no like the budget was small, so we had to stretch every dollar, every pound, yeah. as it were, and um, we had to do so creatively. And everybody was sort of united towards the common goal. I guess is the best way to put it. And since since that project, you know, most of the crew have gone on to other projects with Fred or. Yeah, with us or whatever. So, did you? Um, um, I suppose for you, the biggest impact of making this on a budget that was relatively small was was being able to turn in those licenses. Yeah, uh, I think you found that quite quite a challenge. I found that that aged me tremendously. Yeah, <laughs> <clears throat> tell me a bit. Tell me a bit more about that. Well, luckily. A good number of the songs Max already had in mind from day one, and and together you and I and Fred, like and Jamie, like we collaborated and added more as we went along. But we decided upon the the main songs really early on, about at least a year out before the shoot, yeah. which is great because it gave me I, I needed that much time to get the clearances over the over the hurdle um, because these weren't easy songs to clear. No, and. Um, especially on the budget that we were working with. So an approval was one thing, but making it work within our budget was a totally different thing. And there were certain songs that were turned down 
Yeah. Um, I actually don't even know that I ever told Max or anybody that Dancing on My Own was initially turned down because I didn't want anybody to panic. Is this a world exclusive on it this It might podcast? be. I don't, I don't really know. Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye. Yeah, so <laughs> I went to Asia. I was in Singapore working on Crazy Rich Asians and trying to tidy up all the clearances and Dancing on My Own still had not cleared. And I got a message from her publisher saying that she had respectfully declined. And I just lost it. It was in the middle of a night shoot Shooting the, shooting the wedding scene for Crazy Rich Asians. And What's it was your turn- immediate response? Doesn't she know who I am? No, my immediate response is, oh my God, Max is going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I can't come home from Singapore. Uh, she can't show my face in America again. But um, Is that why you stayed in Singapore for an extra week? Uh, I'm still there, actually. <laughs> communicating remotely. Uh, but... The reason, like, uh, you know, the message that was conveyed to me by Robin's team was that she turned it down because at that time, uh, Dancing on My Own, the exposure on the um, TV series Girls was still pretty fresh in people's minds. And she was just worried about that song sort of being overexposed. Um, But this is an instance where our relationship with Interscope uh, came in handy. She's an Interscope artist. So I spoke to our dear friend Tony Seiler over there. He put in some calls to Robin's management team, and together we were able to make it happen. And a lot of times, you know, people, and, and, and really, it, I think it got turned down not necessarily by Robin herself, but I think it was the managers, and they had not even gone directly to her. Oh, yeah. You know, and that happens sometimes. So you just have to break through that. that. There's a default no answer to yeah. a lot of these requests yeah. that, that you just have to, I mean, you know, We got that with Annie Lennox and Little Bird, I think, because we, you know, we came close to that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think I had to intervene personally yeah. there because I've been involved in the creation of her version of Little Bird way back when. And then... Um, Should we talk about the email that I got? Yeah. <laughs> so so, so here's, here's the most embarrassing story from from my point of view to do with Teen Spirit, which is, is um, knowing Annie extremely well and, you know, being a huge respecter of her and... and uh, having asked for her to give me permission to reproduce this song for, for Teen Spirit with Elle singing it. Um, one of the things that this deal hinged on was obviously that she insisted on having, wanting to hear the, the version that I'd created before she would finally approve it, which I thought, you know, I've done it before. I can, <laughs> I can probably get this right. And I knew this, what she would and wouldn't like, or at least I thought I did. But, um, when uh, we finally sent our mix in progress to her for approval, um, Steve got an email from the publishers to say that she well, yeah, was withholding her approval. <laughs> there, were, there were two wrong notes in it. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I can't believe that Marius missed this. <laughs> Um, I mean, it was very, and they are cool very pleasant, you know. <laughs> they were borderline. I mean, she was absolutely correct. There was a, there were a couple of no- notes um, where the melody twists between a, a minor and a major scale, which is very precise writing on Annie's part. And, and because, I mean, my excuse was this was supposed to be a rehearsal scene and Elle was supposed to be marking her way through the song. So perhaps I paid less attention to the exact notes than I normally would under those circumstances. But we had to we had to circle around with Elle and, and fix those moments. And, and uh, I had to, um, <laughs> next time I saw Annie, I had to be very apologetic and grovelly <laughs> to make sure that she wouldn't withhold her approval anymore. But uh, yeah, we finally managed to cross that bridge. Speaking of that scene, actually, this is a, you know, a question I don't know the answer to. So we obviously, we recorded Elle singing on set in most instances because very conveniently she was singing in front of a microphone for just about everything so we were able to capture her singing live on set and little bird i remember because it was a rehearsal scene we really wanted to use a lot of her live performance in the final and i like how much of of the final of the live performance did we use do you even have a gauge on how much of it made it across the finish line a significant amount um, of her live performance was used in the final mix. Um, I, I think 
um, I'd probably say, as I look back on it, that we did, we, we pre-recorded everything, which is something I generally like to do, unless it's a very specific reason for not doing that. We recorded everything live on set, uh, no matter what the circumstances were, and even if the recordings were compromised, because it's always worth seeing what you can get. And then we cycled back after the shoot and, and got a, a bunch of material to fix it up. And, and with Little Bird, I mean, I'd have to look back at the, at the Pro Tools files. Um, I, I, I couldn't hand on heart say the performance was entirely live and untreated, but, but it was certainly shaped by what she did in the live performance. And um, actually, possibly that's where those two little wrong notes came from. Maybe. Maybe it wasn't my fault. You're blaming Al? <laughs> I it's think it was, mis- it was definitely <laughs> Elle's fault. Um, I do remember being surprised because you know, <laughs> what we usually do, right, is, you know, we, we, the actress or actor performs to the pre-record and then at a certain point you sort of take the training wheels off and, and record yeah. it live once they feel comfortable. But I do remember, uh, I remember being impressed that she much preferred to actually sing live rather than work with the pre-record she just it felt more real to her maybe i I think that's a testament to how hard she worked to get into a place where singing actually became enjoyable and not um not confrontational to her and how um she reached the point that we really wanted her to get to where where, where, um the uh the switch into singing wasn't taking her focus away from her acting Which is a tricky thing to do in in in, in this storyline because a lot of the time she's both acting and performing, and, yeah. and often times if it's if it's more of a, a straightforward musical, you're you're telling you're telling the singers you know don't perform, just act, yeah, and the performance you know the performance will come from the acting. Yeah. But in this case, Elle had to do that and also perform because yeah. there was there was a putative audience and a putative table of judges that she had to sing to, so so um. I mean, yeah, just to talk a little bit more about Elle and her singing, we've already referred to the fact that she was um, you know, pretty green in terms of what what she needed to do to sing when, when we started. She had a beautiful, engaging, um, quite immediately, already quite rangy voice when, when I first came across her. But, but um, there were a lot of the basic fundamentals of the technique that the she was completely a stranger to. Mm. And we only had a, f- a couple of months to knock her into shape along with her other commitments. So she did a really great job getting herself um, into to a place where she was ready not only to sing, but to be shot singing. And I thought what was really impressive is she was so precise in understanding and charting Violet's progression from a yeah. green singer to a more sophisticated one. I mean, there really is a very clear difference in vocal quality between I was a fool all you know, running through That's the arc it. until yeah. Don't Kill My Vibe. And she was always very keenly aware of where she was on that arc. Yeah. Right. And it's not as if we shot those in sequence. Yeah. So she had to jump around a lot um, within that within that arc. Um, but yeah, she really impressed me, and, and, and she was an absolute treasure to work with. Yeah. So that that was you know, getting to know her was definitely one of the high points of the whole thing. I felt agreed. And it, we'd be remiss not to mention the fine work that her singing coach Bob Garrett put into yeah. um, to uh, getting the musculature in good shape yeah. in her, in her voice. I think they still work together, actually, right? Uh, well, because you know, she with be, that Tiffany's commercial. Yeah, she'd be silly not to check in now and again because I think you know he, he's uh, he knows what to do yeah. to to keep her vocally fit, yeah. and who knows when she might be called upon to singing. Teen Spirit Two. I, I never like to talk about sequels. <laughs> it's really tempting, tempting fate or something. It's Violet's bio, downward slide. Um, we touched on it a little bit, but but um, what do you think? As, as you said, the the song choices were really kind of locked in. At least the major you know, tentpole songs mm-hmm. throughout the story, with, with the exception of one or maybe two that we dropped for reasons, for various reasons. But but um, what do you think? Well, first of all, how how was it to work within such strict guidelines? Um, 
in terms, in terms of repertoire. not being so not being starting with a script and saying let's populate this with songs yeah but starting with a script where the songs are kind of clearly stated as to what they are and even mm -hmm. in some cases the way that they integrate you know cinematic cinematographically quite thoroughly imagined yeah. um so a lot of what we often do in the early stages is help find the material and yeah. in this case uh, that that structure was quite resistant to change yeah so I guess I'd, I'd like to ask both of us the same question, which is, first of all, what difference did it make to have those guidelines so firmly established? And secondly, what does that tell us about the inside of Max's head and Jamie's head as well, who kind of co-conceived it with him? Well, I, I love guidelines because it helps narrow focus, right? And as you're, when it came time to replace some of these songs, it helped us, it very much narrowed down the list of, viable options I guess might be the yeah but I, I remember a time when you were generating amazing lists of alternatives yeah. without managing to cause a great deal of change and I think you were finding that a little frustrating for a minute I certainly yeah. was with the you know I, I, I felt we could have been much cleverer with, with our operatic choices yeah um, uh, than the script indicated and pushing quite hard about that and, mm -hmm. and meeting a surprising amount of resistance to that. Um, I later understood that there was a, a family connection yeah. to the opera that we used. And there is a family connection to so many of these songs. And I think that's in, you know, when, 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 uh, when the job is called upon me to, to find alternates or find a song for, for a film or a TV show or whatever it is. And same with you probably Sometimes it's not necessarily that I that we bring to the table the song that quote unquote wins at the end of the day. Yeah. Um, you know, one song idea leads to another, which sparks another idea, and you're sort of it's also figuring out what doesn't work and what you don't want. But you know, but that, but a clear vision is is good. And I remember early on. Yeah, that's true. He he, uh, you sort of see it. it it's 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 present in the opening sequence to the grime song where Elle is bailing hay and, and you hear you have that cold electronic thing. If you recall, the opening sequence was intended, I think, was it going to be lights that kind of played under that at the beginning before, and then morphed into I Was a Fool? Yeah, there was an right? idea that it would be the intro from lights morphing into I Was a Fool, and then we were going to try and do it just with the intro to yeah. I Was a Fool. And it was supposed to be this sort um, of icy cold Euro synthy thing yeah. over this pastoral yeah. um, farmhouse, and that juxtaposition was really interesting to Max and actually really interesting to, to I think both of us as well. Yeah. Because it's not what you would expect, right? Um, th this was, this this movie was the first outing in recent history of, of Interscope as a, as film producers, mm -hmm. right? Um, which I think we benefited from in a lot of ways, but um, what, what was your experience of, of working in an environment where the soundtrack partners were also producing the film. I mean, it, it helped me in a certain instances in trying to get some clearances over the finish line. Yeah. Um, no doubt certainly wouldn't have happened if it weren't for them. Have you seen Captain Marvel yet? What is that? Captain Marvel. It's a Marvel superhero movie. Uh, Marvel? Huh? Who, who's that? Captain, oh shush! Um, <laughs> no, I haven't yeah, seen so Captain Marvel yet. One of the action set pieces. It's is on set my list of yeah. things to yeah. see. Yeah, Just a Girl was a big action set piece in Captain Marvel. Oh. So absolutely, and that must have already been locked in. Yes, in. and so they had clearly received maybe you know millions of dollars. God only knows what from DC and Disney. Sorry, DC and Marvel exclusivity and Disney. And conflict. who knows? And so they really didn't want to give us Just a Girl because it was already in place somewhere else. Um, but Interscope twisted their arm in it, went over the finish line. Now, how did you feel, you know, bouncing the question back at you, because you didn't answer the question, being uh, handed a script with the musical repertoire so clearly defined? Was that confining or liberating or somewhere in the middle? I thought it was actually liberating. Um, and once I understood that, that, that the, the architecture was sort of defined by a, a, you know, a, a personal um, a personal architecture within Max's creative imagination, his creative forming, and, and how that tied into his um, his memory of his father and his father's work. Um, 
then I just learned to, first of all, to trust that, but be just, just to take it as a given, which freed up the entire music team to concentrate on process a little bit more than um, uh, narrative construction yeah. or something like that. So uh, we were able to do pretty advanced draft versions of the songs at a very early stage, which really helped when, when we were able when we came to L to to um to get her voice to sit in them successfully because we were ahead of the game in imagining the stylings of the music and and where we were going to you know develop them from the original versions where we were going to stay a little bit more faithful um I mean, you know and my, by the way my hat's off to you and I know I've told you this a million times but your version of don't care my mind in my opinion is just infinitely more exciting and impressive and vital than the Sigrid version. No offense to I just, Sigrid, I, I just way, like but... to think of it as different. Yeah. And and its its purpose is different yeah. and it's there for a different reason yeah. and it's doing a different job. So um it's it's it's, it's a bit in my opinion it's it's, it's a bit unfair to compare two yeah. two yeah. things which are located in different media uh, and you know doing completely different jobs of work. I'm a big fan of Sigrid, and I think yeah. she's she's an amazing young yeah. talent. Yeah. Um, but thank you. Mm-hmm. I think we ought to talk a little bit about our music team, who um, yeah. are, are regular appearances in the projects we do together, and partly because of the constraints of you know our, our very limited budget, so we we weren't able to do the normal, the requisite amount of of music mixing. Um, you know, the, all of the preparation and instrumentation had to be kind of achieved in a, in a gr- sort of guerrilla way to keep costs low. So um, I, I think that the impact that Eldad Guetta and, and, and Nikolai Baxter had on this was um, well worth noting because, you know, they, they, uh, they kept the spine of this going when sometimes uh, conditions must have been very difficult. Yeah. And it was, for budgetary reasons, it was unfortunate that we couldn't have them on set with us, which is what we usually do. That's right, yes. Yeah, so, um, um, so they had to work remotely, which is, you know, you know it, it makes it harder for them to sort of to be in the loop and what's going on half the time. Um, but yeah, these, you know. And then because, we, you know, you've done such an amazing job with the licensing funds to cover all of the main songs, but... Uh, Clearly, um, you know, you kind of hit the ceiling of what was available and we still had a number of scenes which it didn't make any sense to score with anything other than needle drops. Yeah. And so myself and Eldad and, and Fiora Cutler were um, uh, actually had to replace a lot of those licenses with their own little compositions yeah. that were kind of... Which I don't know if anybody listening to this realizes those little... Those little snippets of songs you hear while Violet's listening to it's, her headphones it's you a hear in the bar. Game. It's a drinking it's game. It's pretty amazing. You know? Every time you hear one of our individual compositions where there should have been a license, you yeah. have a shot of Polish vodka. <laughs> <laughs> and by the end of the movie, you, you finally understand what we went through. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and, you know, credit where credit's due, those numbers are, or those, you know, faux needle drops are very credible and they don't distract they really sound like they belong. So, I think it might be a little bit of a side business, you know. Yeah, I think so. Faking, actually. faking source cues. <laughs> Can used to um, put two or three very short tracks on every album, which were called EFSs, which was the Ethnological Forgery series, <laughs> where they would, you know, simulate a Moroccan wedding, mm-hmm. or they would simulate, you know, a Bear Bear love song or something like that. And so you can make your own music library, basically. That's what. It, that's all it is. Mm. It's like, yes, yeah, so that's not a new idea at all, is no, it? No, it's not. <laughs> but this is a very good one. So, talking of uh, you know the the cast, I, I wonder what you made of the um, the part of uh, the role of Marcus, who is one of the um, <laughs> one of the judges. He's a rising star. That one. I am. I am eagerly awaiting your next on-screen appearance in your own time. There we go. Mm-hmm. And you made it into the trailer. You've now been in two trailers. I've been in two trailers with the same the line. The same line. Yeah, I know. This is... Um, uh, Have you joined SAG yet, by the way? 
I mean, I'm sure you must have got. I keep me. trying to join. I don't. I think I did join SAG. Um, what I haven't found is an agent who'll take me on. Oh, they'll okay. just laugh at me. Well, if you're listening, just, just to yeah, if it, it, just <laughs> to explain if this is not making no sense to you at all. This is um, my, my third appearance now as a as, as a um, what I like to call a featured extra. Um, I think from the producer's point of view, it's like a pity cameo appearance, so they just uh, humour me. But um, yeah, this is this is uh, something I like to do is to try and make a, a tiny appearance in the films that I work on the music for. And this is the latest in that line. But the tiny appearance has grown into speaking lines now, so that's now I get my own speaking yeah, I lines. Get in Teen Spirit, you have the back of my head. La La Land, I'm standing next to a pool with Fred Berger, our producer. You, you never get to say anything. No, Whereas I but I did sing to... in Another Day of Sun, so there's that. I do get sag uh, checks every once in a while. But, yeah, I, I realised I now have two catchphrases, one of which is, in your own time, and the second which is, take a seat, please. <laughs> <laughs> it's better to be known for something. Um, I think we're, I think we've, Almost out of our allotted time, yeah. but but um, I just wanted to finally touch on the overarching subject matter mm -hmm. of Teen Spirit, which is the um, the singing competition, um, and just talk a little bit about how well or not Teen Spirit captured the authentic flavour of that world, mm -hmm. and and what 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 are your earliest memories of um, this new breed of talent competition, which is the American Idol and The Idol and The Voice and... Well, my first exposure to it, I was working at Disney with our mutual friend, Matt Walker. Yeah. And we were working on a, an animated film and we needed someone, we needed, you know, as, as happens, you need a pop, pop star to cover a song for the end credits to give you some sort of marketing cachet. Yeah. And the film was set in London, so they wanted a British pop star. And this is when I discovered this thing called Pop Idol. And Willie Young had just won. And that was the first one, right? Yeah, that was the that first one. That was Simon one. Fuller's yeah, exactly. invention. So that, so I, they sent me sort of, you know, VHS tapes on PAL that I had to have transferred to And watch. did you meet Will? Uh, uh, over uh, Skype. And he right. recorded the song for us. It was very funny. He's a super nice guy. Really, super right? nice, yeah. And he recorded the song that was written by uh, Dean Pitt. I can't remember who it was. And he didn't even win, did he? No, he? no, he won. Yeah, and Gareth... Came in second. No, I think it was the other way around. I think Gareth won and Will came really? second. I, I think so. I mean, oh, uh, I might be not wrong. that I was paying yeah. attention. But then, you know, of course, a year or so later, then American Idol happens here, and I was riveted for a few seasons until I got bored. Oh, you did get riveted? Oh, yeah. I, I remember the, the finals, the, uh, the Justin and Kelly finals, was on my birthday. Mm. And you know what I did for my birthday? You I stayed that. home and opened a bottle of wine. <laughs> I was aware of. All I stand of, all by of, my choice. I was aware of all of that <laughs> happening at that point because I, because I was working. I mean, Simon and I were were, were quite good friends, and mm -hmm. we were particularly close around yeah. then because he was, as well as inventing um, pop idol. Yeah. He's managing he, Westlife, he was, right? And well, no, he was managing Annie Lennox, okay. and he was also managing Danny D, yeah. who um, who had that famous 90s dance act called D-Mob that okay. I was sort of heavily involved in. And so, so I was doing a bunch of pretty cool dance remixes through Simon's um, management structure and also beginning to work on Annie Lennox's first solo mm -hmm. album. Um, at the same time, in another corner of what was becoming this quite large empire at the time, 19, there were the, this strange girl band called the Spice Girls were, yeah. were, were being hatched mm -hmm. uh, and the this this singing competition thing and and i definitely knew which side of the building i wanted to be on you know mm -hmm. i was definitely on the annie lennox and um danny d side of the building yeah. but every now and again we'd get visits from the from the spice girls or we'd hear stuff that was going on with us and, and i mean I, I just i guess with with the spice girls at that early stage and with, with with the singing competition I do I just had no idea that either of them were going to explode like they did but um Simon really is the the goose that can lay golden eggs and yeah. it was incredible to see it explode like that but I always treated those um singing competitions with with suspicion mm -hmm. that the idea of 
being able to construct a playing field level enough to judge one singer against another yeah. on a points sort of basis, yeah. or on a basis of the merit of the one performance. Um, I remember at the time it, 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 it sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. I, I mean, I just found like how, for me, what I find problematic about those shows is it's, you're, you know, that show will never find the next Joni Mitchell or Bob Dylan or Kate Bush. You know what I mean? Like, they're no, they're strictly looking for you know, not even the next George Michael, right? They're not really looking for the the next songwriter. Um, so it's it's charisma. It's like yeah, you uh, get to uh, the point where if you hear another rendition of Hallelujah, you are oh seriously going to kill yeah. yourself. That has been banned. For, I think as an American idol stuff, they, they've no they, there is now a list of forbidden songs, and I think that's on it. I was much to the detriment of the Leonard Cohen. I was at a really <laughs> rather wonderful musical soiree the other day, and, and and there were some great people there. One of the great people being Rufus mm-hmm. Wainwright, and. Um, he was asked to sing a couple of songs and, and he sang Hallelujah. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, he's, he's done one of the great versions of that yeah, song. Yeah, yeah. Him and the John Cale But version. nonetheless, you know, John, the John Cale one's incredible, as is the Lenny Cohen version, mm-hmm. funnily enough. Yeah. But it, it was a real flip, you know, I've heard the first few chords and the instinctive reaction was, oh God, <laughs> not, not bad. <laughs> <laughs> and then you yeah, hang on it's all right this is Rufus yeah. first of all he's allowed and yeah. second it's actually going to be worth listening to yeah but um you know of all the of the genius pieces of historical songwriting to be ruined by repetition that's a particular yeah tragedy um and leading on from that how do you think Teen Spirit did capturing the uh, atmosphere of that world I don't know I, mean, I think that there's a distinct difference in tone between a British singing competition and an American singing competition. Mm-hmm. And I don't know enough about British singing competitions to know how, how it, much it hit the nail on the head, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I think choices were like, I think good time was, feels very much in the tone of a British singing competition. Yeah. Um, and I'm very happy. Like I was able to squeeze in teenage kicks, which is one of my all time favorite songs. And that seems like a song that, you know, there's always those, you know, like a, a British singing competition, a song from the jam or, or you know, the, you know, the Buzzcocks or whatever, like some old punk song will turn up on one of these shows, which it doesn't in an American show. How do you feel that it? I, I thought it was it. quite a long way from being realistic. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think that ended up being a good thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't, th- the, 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 the pickup band, suddenly appearing in a later round mm-hmm. felt like, like if you were to be literal about it, yeah. that's never going to happen. Yeah. But it, it was, it made, it made the story more of a fairy tale. Yeah. And, and, you know, Max, um, I don't know how much he said this at the time, but certainly looking back on it, he's, just, you know, he keeps referring to this as being a sort of Cinderella story. Mm-hmm. It's got a fairy tale dimension to it. And I, I think that's right, and I think that that gave it permission to to um, to not try and be documentarian about yeah. the representation of singing competitions. I thought the band added a nice, you know, her mother wasn't there. Uh, Vlad wasn't always on screen. There, there was something about the band while they didn't, they were they weren't really at the forefront of the story. There's mm. something about her being surrounded by them, that I think helped. Like I, you know, I don't know how to convey that. Or what I'm, you know, trying to convey rather, but uh, well, yeah, they were they, they, they were a family. sort of yeah. a moral compass yeah. while she was losing hers, yeah. Um, especially when she turned up late for the rehearsal, yeah. or, or when they tried to rescue her mm-hmm. in, in in the nightclub when she was um, a, a couple of vodkas too deep into the evening. Yeah. Much like at the very end of Teen Spirit. So, what's next for Marius Devries? I've got to go back to London now um, to to dive back into the biggest project I'm doing this year, which is trying to help turn the musical Cats into a motion picture. So we've we finished shooting that, and uh, we're just about to start editing it. And it's been, uh, it's been pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, was, it was a different- How long was the shoot? It was, it was long, right? Three and a half months. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but, um, 
Tom Hooper's directing and his his uh, his methodology is all about capturing the live performance, which I fully endorse uh, as an approach. But but um, it becomes challenging when the piece is so choreography heavy and so full of ensemble numbers because as you know the more people doing things at the same time especially when it involves physicality the more difficult it is to record what yeah. they're singing both in terms of how you get the microphones in there and in terms of how much noise there is and in terms of how out of breath they are while they're singing so uh, the, the shoot was a an enormous technical challenge and got to be working with a uh, an amazing sound department led by Simon Hayes and found some great new um, talented sort of young English people to help with the onset musical direction and the accompaniment, the pianist and the musical direction on set and just herding that many that, that many cats at the same time was, was, was a logistical challenge. So um, that's that's what my next few months looks like, getting that under control. And then, you know, there's a few other things bubbling under, including a couple of things in New York. So I may be joining you here towards the oh, end of the year. Wonderful. If you're still here. I probably will be, yeah. Yeah, okay, well, so we're now becoming tri-coastal. Yes, exactly. Um, all right, well, this is Marius de Vries and Steve Gazicki on radio station Teen Spirit podcast, signing off from New York. Thank you all for listening so diligently and patiently to the very end of this interview. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. Talk Spirit is brought to you by Q Code, Bleecker Street, LD Entertainment, and Automatic. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. See you next week. <laughs>